Well, good morning, everybody. New mic, it's nice and loud. We are completing our series on Philippians today, and uh, we come to a passage that's going to really bring a lot of the uh, content together into a a clearer picture. And Paul's going to be talking about money, and there has always been tension in money and in ministry. There's always been tension between giving to the purposes of the Lord, um, the people that are carrying out the purposes of the Lord or supposedly carrying out the purposes of the Lord, uh, and there's, there's always this, this tension. And we come to a point in the letter where some of the tension and the conflict that existed in the Philippian church um, comes clear, and it's around money. But even with Jesus, there was conflict and tension around money. If you recall, um, the, the moment when, when a, a wealthy prostitute, and she had become wealthy through her, her profession, uh, came and anointed Jesus' feet with a very costly perfume. The, the value of the perfume was over um, an average annual salary. And Judas got really upset and walked out of the house where Jesus' feet was being anointed. Um, he argued that that perfume should have been sold um, and then the money used to help the poor. And then the text, one of the texts, um, argues and, and explains Judas's true motivations. Um, he was the one that handled the money for Jesus and the twelve and stole from it. Okay, so here at the at the earliest place in Christianity, the beginnings of Christian ministry, Jesus' own team, we have conflict about how money should be used, and we have uh, embezzlement happening. And the history of the church hasn't gotten any better. All right, so there's always this tension around money. And Jesus' argument to Judas was, hey, there are times to help the poor, and there are times to worship me with money. And so, again, there's, there's always been this conflict. And so if we look here at this, this passage that, um, that Laura read this morning for us, I want to go down through it and just kind of point out the, the tension that exists that we can see here even in Paul's writing um, to the Philippians about this gift that they sent. And so he begins, he says, I'm, I'm thankful that you revived your concern for me at last. Okay, so basically he's saying, finally, <laughs> you guys are showing con- concern and care for me because I've received support from you again. Okay, what, now, it, if you just read that, it sounded like um, that he was kind of maybe uh, upset or not happy with you as a church for a while, but, but then he goes on to say that, um, I know you were concerned for me, but you didn't have the opportunity. And so at last you've revived your concern. I know you were concerned. All right, so he's got this little bit, he makes these statements, and then he kind of explains them, all right? And then he says, although I'm not, I'm not uh, excited about your revived concern because I was in a lot of need, because I really wasn't. 
Um, I've learned how to be content in situations of great need, and I've learned how to be content in situations of great abundance, okay? I'm thankful for your gift. Well, he, he doesn't ever actually say I'm thankful. You get the spirit of the whole passage is that he's thankful for the gift, but it's, it's really nuanced. So I'm, I'm glad that you revived your concern for me. I know that you've always been concerned, but now you've had the opportunity to show it, but it didn't seem like it for a while. Um, but I'm not, I haven't really been in need, okay? because remember he says, even if I die, my deliverance is the courage that God gives me to go through the suffering well. All right, so Paul can die and be fine, and he can live and be fine. And so he's wanting to express that... Um, He's never really in a place of great need. But now he says, okay, because then that sounds kind of offensive. You sent, we sent this great gift, Paul, but you didn't really need it. But then he says, no, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So that, that's a, it's, it's another expression of his appreciation. And then he goes on to say how generous the Philippian church has been. You guys have shared with me in your material things time and time again since my earliest days of ministry with you. So I'm really happy that you've been so generous. But then he backs off and says, I'm not, re I'm not really seeking your gift though. What I'm really excited about is how your gifts are a credit to your eternal investments in the Lord. That's what he's excited about. It's a credit to their own accounts. But then he says, I have been well supplied. And so it's this, it's kind of this back and forth. I appreciate it. I didn't really need it. You were so generous, but I'm, I'm, and I'm excited about it, but I'm excited about it, not for my sake, even though it helped in my need, but I'm excited about it for your sake. So it's like this, he, he wants them to be generous and to be consistent in their support, but he, he wants them to understand that his benefit is not the primary concern that he has in mind in their giving, you see? Um, because that is always the challenge with, with money, right? These, the, 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 those who have been called to gospel ministry are called to preach and teach the people of God to give generously to the gospel ministry. And so part of my job is, is preaching and teaching to you all and telling you all to support me. Okay, it's an awkward place to be. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later because in this passage we see that, that Jesus gives um, some great principles for us as a church, whether you are the persons called to the ministry of the gospel or the church is called to support it. There is a way to pursue um, this aspect of life together. There's this aspect of money. There's a way to pursue it that um, frees us, frees us of the tension around money and finances in the ministry. And so why is there this tension between Paul and the Philippian church? And so here we've actually kind of come to a point in the book where, where some of the ambiguity around um, the disunity in the church and some of the ambiguity around uh, Paul's ministry can kind of get cleared up. Okay, so I'm going to kind of paint a scenario in a more clear way of what was actually going on in the church. And I think in it, we'll see some of the challenges that we have 
uh, when we think about our own money and how we contribute uh, to, to the ministry. So first of all, is that the church began to experience some suffering. And Paul says in chapter 1, verse 30, you've be, I know you've begun to experience some suffering, and it's suffering of the type that I experienced. So some, suffer, some, some persecution, some pressure from the outside. And we know that throughout the, uh, the, ch- the history of the church in the, in the New Testament, we see that some of the pressure that they experienced was financial. Some of it was physical in terms of being beaten and thrown in prison and those kinds of things. Anyway, there was some suffering being experienced by the church. And we all know that when we experience suffering, um, it challenges us, okay? It challenges us. It challenges our faith, challenges our love. We have a temptations to pull in we have temptations to blame others anyway so there was suffering and and in the midst of this suffering the um the constant tendencies that exist within christianity within the people of god began to surface and one of them was this idea of 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 triumphalism the idea of triumphalism is that um if we were doing everything right we wouldn't suffer. We wouldn't suffer. And actually, that's the tendency towards perfectionism with the other one. So the idea of perfectionism is if we were doing everything right, we wouldn't suffer. We wouldn't go through these negative experiences. And so there's always, there's always this sense that I, I should have done something different in my past, and if, and if I had done that, I wouldn't be experiencing the suffering now. And the other one is triumphalism. True Christian ministry will never endure setbacks or weaknesses. All right, so we have this tendency, because it's our flesh longing to justify ourselves, longing for us to be able to claim victory for ourselves, and to say that we've made it, we've done it, and it's because of our perfect and good efforts that we've made it and done it. These tendencies towards perfectionism and triumphalism always come up in the presence of suffering, because we don't like what we're going through. And we want to blame it on something, or have some regret some way of wrapping our minds around it because certainly God, who is good, wouldn't let suffering come upon us. And then those are the early steps then to legalism. When we start writing and creating rules to govern our behavior because faith isn't enough and we need a safe and secure way to avoid suffering and to come out on top, all right? That's that's why he has in chapter 3, beware of the dogs that come and preach circumcision, and all these other kinds of rules. These are things that are tendencies in churches when suffering begins to set in. And then you have Paul's imprisonment. All right, so if we think that if if we did everything right, nothing bad would happen to us, um, then how how can we explain Paul being imprisoned? Certainly there's a setback now in the ministry. And then there began to emerge questions. Okay, well, maybe Paul is not legitimate. Maybe he's in sin. Maybe he's doing something wrong. Um, and then that eventually emerges between a conflict between two, two leaders in the church, two women who were leaders in the church, probably hosted a house church, probably were deacons, probably significant financial supporters of, of the church and of Paul's ministry, and conflict arose between these two leaders, and it spread throughout the entire church and it it created an ongoing broad disunity in the church and in this context a collection for Paul gets taken up and so 
there's questions about Paul, there's questions about ministry, there's questions about supporting him, and the collection doesn't get completed, and Paul doesn't get the gift. That's why he says, you've revived your concern for me at last. There was some stopping of their support. And then if you remember in chapter, chapter 2, he says that Epaphroditus took it upon himself to make up for what was lacking. And so they were unsuccessful in taking up a collection for Paul because of the disunity. And Epaphroditus says, you know what? I'm tired of waiting around for this church to get themselves figured out. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'll meet, the, I'll meet the financial need that's there, and I'm going to travel myself and go. Well, then Epaphroditus, on his way, gets sick. <laughs> now, if you're a church that's thinking that Christian ministry shouldn't, exp- shouldn't ha- suffer setbacks or problems, and we should always be victorious, and somebody must have done something wrong if there's a problem, then <laughs> Epaphroditus getting sick, taking matters into his own hands, carrying all this money to go visit Paul, is just going to continue to reaffirm, see, I told you so. Epaphroditus has failed. So when Epaphroditus gets there, he dumps all this story onto Paul. And thus we have this letter. And so Paul then sends it back. Hey, Epaphroditus completed his job. He didn't fail. You've revived your concern for me. And it's time to correct this disunity in the church. That's kind of the whole scenario. And so that then... um, brings us to this final part in the letter. This addressing of the tension in their support, in their finances, in their giving, and the underlying disunity that existed uh, because of some of these tendencies that can set in in the church. And so how do we become free? How can we as a church and how how can we as leaders who are supported by the ministry experience freedom in our life together so that we can express and have true unity um, and be focused on the progress of the gospel and be free of, the, of, the, of, the, of these kinds of tensions. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to become perfect in these things, right? Because perfectionism is not the answer. But there are some, some principles here. And there's some gospel realities that Paul is preaching and teaching here that can help keep us oriented so that our understanding about um, our support of the ministry from a financial perspective um, can remain clear. Okay, and so there, the first thing that I want to address is how do we remain free, those of us who receive support from the, go- from the gospel, okay? The scriptures are clear throughout the both Old and New Testament. Those who labor in the gospel should be supported by the people of God for that work. So there are some things here that Paul addresses. For those of us that earn our living from the gospel. The first one is that if the, if the minister has given his or her life for the gospel. All right, that's, a, that's a decision that comes and there's a clarity around it that has or should have a full confidence that God has called that person to this work and that he will take care of him. Paul says, why should a soldier enlisted um, be concerned about civilian matters? And so before a minister of the gospel gets into this line of work, he or she needs to be very clear. God has called me to this. God has called me to this, and he has committed 
to take care of me. Now, for me, I'll just give a little bit of, um, I've, I've shared several times that, that I felt God was calling me to be an aerospace engineer, um, and, um, and that what really convinced me not to pursue that was just the lives that, that I saw the gospel having an effect on. But the last hurdle that I had to overcome in making the switch from pursuing that line of work to being a minister was financial. Okay, all of the pastors that I knew at the time, so I'm 17 years old. All of the pastors I knew at the time were not wealthy. They were not well off. Um, I grew up, and my father was the vice president of an animal pharmaceutical company. He was very well off, and I was used to a certain lifestyle, and I saw what he did in corporate management, and I had some of his gifts, other gifts as well, so I kind of could see myself in my father. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to trade that for what these guys have. That was my last hurdle. And it took several months to work through that hurdle. And um, God eventually convinced me of it. And I remember very vividly, okay, God, you're going to have to provide if, if I go down this route. I'll go down this route, but you're gonna, your word says you'll provide, and I'm going to trust you in that. And, and that attitude has to be sustained. That attitude has to be sustained. We can't think of it as, an, as a career that's validated by income, position, etc. It's just a different, it's a different line of work. Second thing is we need to become confident in the need to teach giving, not for our sakes, but for the church's sake. Okay, Paul is very adamant throughout, of his, throughout his letters, okay? that, that um, ministers of the gospel, and this is Old Testament, New Testament, people who are responsible to care for and shepherd the church are to teach the church to be generous and sacrificial and joyful in the first fruits that God has provided them with. Um, and you have to teach it boldly because the scriptures teach, tell us to teach it boldly. And if you don't teach it boldly, it means there's some insecurity there, which I think then would communicate that there are some false motives present. If you, if you can't teach something with confidence, there's some insecurity around that. And um, what is that insecurity? Is there a concern that you're in the ministry for your own self? Is there a concern that you're in the ministry just for the money? And there are people that pursue the ministry simply because it's, they think that it's an easy job that they can get into. So if we can't teach that boldly, we shouldn't be ministers of the gospel. It's, a, it's an important part of, of the teaching. And it is of benefit to the church. Paul says here, I don't seek the gift. I seek what you will receive for your generosity in giving to the Lord. And, and he believes that. And if we don't believe that God is going to mightily work to bless those who are following him and his teaching and who are following Jesus, we're going to look at it later, but, but giving generously of yourself for the good of the gospel is exactly what Jesus, is exactly what Jesus did. And so the second thing, so we have to be convinced that God's going to provide for us. We have to teach and preach giving generously with boldness because it's of benefit to the church. And we have to learn to live in abundance and in need. 
Okay, there are, there are times in the ministry, so I started professionally, I've been a professional minister um, since I was 26 years old, that's 20 years. There have been times in the ministry where I've gone months without pay. Um, and there have been times in those cases where I grew bitter. I, I didn't learn, okay, or maybe this is the, these are the means through which God was teaching me to be content and joyful in the times of lack, okay, um, and specifically in thy bitterness when the, in, when the paycheck started coming again, I made a decision that I wasn't going to give for a while. Because that, that's how that bitterness affected me. And I began to see pockets in my life from a, from a financial perspective where I could, I could just kind of sense that the blessing of God had been lifted from me and he was using my financial circumstances to further uh, discipline me. And I repented. And I repented. And I could begin to see um, God's hand of discipline lift in that area. If you want some more details, I can answer it later. But but I did, I did not learn how to live in that season of need very, very well. But that, since then, it has been different. Now, also, at times in the ministry, I'm put into places where I am not comfortable. There is a great deal of need. They're short-term. It's like when I travel to Africa. And it, it took me about three international trips to Cambodia and Nigeria and these places to get to the point where I did not complain. And one of the trips I just had to have as my primary goal, not the teaching, not anything. My goal in this trip is to not complain. That was my goal. And over, the, over time, God has, has gifted me with the ability to rejoice and to be content in those times of, of need, whether they were short-term or long. And then there's always the challenge of abundance, we need to receive well like Jesus did. A woman wanted to worship him in her abundance. And Jesus didn't correct her. Jesus received. And so those of us who are called to be ministers of the gospel need to receive well, need to receive with thanksgiving, uh, and we need to enjoy it wisely. Jesus teaches us to enjoy what we have and to be generous with what we have. If we are only on the side of generous and not enjoying, you're not obeying the gospel. Not obeying the gospel. And so those are the three things for, for, for those who receive their support from the gospel. If you're called to it, you have to trust that God is going to provide. Two, you have to boldly preach and teach the need for the church to be generous in their giving and three, you need to learn to live in abundance in need. Now, what does it mean for the church to those who are called to give? Okay, and, and we would put ourselves, those of us who receive support from the gospel, we would put ourselves in this, in this pile as well, in this group of people as well, with all of you, because we're called to the same thing, to support the, the ministry and the service of the gospel. And that's very clear when elders come on and we... And when we have some people that come on from a ministry support standpoint, we tell them, we expect you to give and to give generously because you need to be able to preach and teach this with confidence. And if you're not giving generously and sacrificially and joyfully and of the first fruits, if you're not doing that, you can't preach it with confidence. So we have that conversation very early on. So we follow these principles. First of all, you cannot, and these, these are the ideas right out of Philippians. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible about money, but these are the things that are coming out of this passage in Philippians. First of all, you cannot use your money as a vote. Okay, there are going to be things that we do as a church that some of you won't like. That's going to cost some money. 
And there are going to be times when we do things as a church that some of you like. And they're going to cost money. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't vote our support for what's going on in the church by, by our, with our giving, right? It's just God is working in a long process with us in the church. And I think he works in the church like he does with us as individuals. There are times when God will lead us or let us go down a path that's going to end in some failure. Not because God wants us to fail. It's because God sees that we need to fail in order to learn some things. And I see that in my own life, and I've seen that in the church. I've seen that in the church. I've got two very specific instances where, where we went down some paths from a leadership perspective and some from financial perspectives that, that following that path for a year or two or three, we began to say, hey, you know what? That's not the right way to go. And we don't ask, well, wasn't God answering our prayers back then? Um, were we out of fellowship with him? You know, we can't question all those things because perfectionism and triumphalism aren't the, the indicators of, of whether be, being faithful or not. And so we cannot vote with our money. If you are committed to God and believe that you're called here to this church, and, and which means that you are called to... Uh, to, to submit to the authorities of the church, 1 Peter chapter 5 and in numerous other places, uh, and are called to be one-minded with the church in spirit, okay? Not just in action, in spirit, which means we all share a common vision and purpose and understanding about who we are and what we're called to. Uh, that means you need to be all in. That means you need to be all in. If you can't be all in, why can't you be all in? And that's something to sit down and talk with the elders of the church about. But... We can't be fair-weather fans, all right? We can't be fair-weather fans with the church and use money to vote with, which is what they were doing here in Philippians. Number two, it is a sacrifice. Our giving to the purposes of the gospel is a sacrifice to God that pleases him. He says, I have, rece I have received your gift, it is a fragrant aroma, a pleasant sacrifice to God that pleases him. It makes God glad. When we joyously and generously and sacrificially give our first fruits for the gospel, it gladdens God. It gladdens God. It's not first and foremost to the people or to the ministry need. It is to God. And that's another reason why you can't use your money to vote. You're giving it to the Lord. You're giving it to the Lord. Okay, not to the elders, not to the pastors. You're giving it to the Lord for his work, for his purposes, for his use. And you trust that the leaders that he's entrusted to the church are going to spend that wisely. And so what we've, you know, and, and it's res the responsibility of the leaders in the church to establish structures and policies and systems that ensure financial integrity. We have a governance team. 
It's two people. We're hopefully going to add a third person to that. With a, so it's Lawrence and I right now. We had a third person on uh, a year ago. Um, that person wanted to go off. We've been searching for a third person to add somebody that's not on the ministry staff, not one of the pastors to be on that governance team. So we hope to have that resolved in another, another few months here. Um, but we have a finance team. The finance team creates the budget. Okay, the governance team approves it. The governance team, excuse me, the finance team establishes the salaries. Then the elders then look at it as a whole. And no money is spent in this church that doesn't go through the finance team and the bookkeeper. All right? I have a credit card for the church. I have an expense. It has to all line up with the budget. Once I hit my numbers, anything else beyond that is on me. Sorry, George, you've extended your account. You are responsible for those expenses. Everything gets evaluated. And that's important for the church to understand that there are systems in place for financial integrity. But ultimately, again, you can't trust in all of those systems. You have to trust in God. And your gift is a gift to God. Number three, <clears throat> realize, excuse me, started getting a little cold this weekend. Number three, we need to realize that when we are giving, we are building kingdom investments. Paul uses accounting terms. He used credit to your account, paid in full. He intentionally is using accounting terms in this passage because he wants us to understand that 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 there is some similarity in terms of how we think about money and investing with money in the kingdom of God. We all, I mean, it, the scriptures teach it. It's wise to save and to plan for the long term. And so if you have some sort of savings plan or investment plan for the long term, Proverbs says it's wise to leave something for your children's children. Jesus says it's wise to plan ahead. It's a fool that spends everything he has, the Proverbs say. So if you have some sort of saving or, or investment plan, um, it's tempting to spend those things for short-term interest, isn't it? It's tempting because there's some instant gratification that we'd like now with spending some of those long-term things. But, but Jesus says don't, don't save up for the here and now. Save up for the long-term. You can't, he says... He, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, he's not saying not save, not plan ahead for your kids' kids. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that where are you going to put your long-term investments? He's saying invest for the kingdom. Invest for the kingdom. He says there is treasure in heaven. Now, I'm not exactly sure what he means. <laughs> it's not like you get a quarterly earnings report from Jesus. Hey, here's what you've got stored up in heaven. All right? He doesn't have one of those. But here's what he says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. God has promised to multiply many-fold our investments into the kingdom. And he's specifically talking about money. He says, where your heart is at, your treasure will be. And some have said, well, that's going to be then a measure 
where I, where, where I put my money is where my heart is at. And it's a measure, it's an, it gives us the ability to evaluate where we're at. But he's also saying this. If you put your money into something, that's where your heart is going to follow. And I, I've heard, you know, if, if, you, if somebody gave you $10,000 worth of Apple stock and you never had any sort of Apple stock before, but now you have $10,000 worth of Apple stock, let me tell you something. You're going to start checking the value of Apple stock on a lot more regular basis. Why? Because you have treasure there and your heart has followed. And so it is a way to evaluate where our hearts are at, but it's also a way to direct our hearts. Our hearts will follow where we put our treasure. It's a kingdom investment. And there's, a, there's again, there's an aspect of that. What does that mean? When we get to the kingdom of God, what does that mean? I don't know. But there will be reward for it. And the last thing, in terms of how we can experience a degree of freedom in regard to money and ministry, and this is, this is, it is a, this is a beautiful passage. Look at this last one here. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We know Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all things will be added unto you. He said, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is head and rule above all kingdoms and authorities and rulers and dominions and powers on this earth. And everything is at his feet and he owns everything. There is nothing that Jesus Christ doesn't own. That is his bank account. And he says we are going to be supplied every need of ours according to the abundance that Jesus has. Which means that Jesus has the ability <laughs> to provide everything that we need. It's not a promise that you're going to be rich for your entire life. It's a promise that you will never lack what you need. Now you can only, make, you can only claim that verse... If what before Paul says of the Philippians is also true of you, you've been consistent in your support of the gospel. If you have a lifestyle of giving for the support of the gospel, you can claim that verse. It's, it's almost like, I mean, I don't want to degrade what, what Paul is saying here by putting it into some of our contemporary terms, but it's like an insurance policy. And Jesus said the same thing. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all things will be supplied to you. He didn't say, hey, everything is going to be supplied to you. No, seek first the kingdom of God and all things will be supplied to you. If your heart and mind and money is directed to first the kingdom of God, there is no need that you, you, you don't need to fear lacking God's providing for you in what you need. Now, daily bread, he says in the, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, daily bread. He'll provide your daily bread. You may not see where tomorrow's daily bread's coming from at times. And I've been in places like that as a kid and as an adult. But the daily bread God will provide. We can't live this way. We can't live in this freedom without a constant belief in pursuit of the gospel. 
without following the instructions in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have the same mind. Have the, have the mind of Jesus Christ. And then it goes into that beautiful poem about how Christ did not consider his interests first, but considered the interests of others. He gave up his riches to become poor. Christ became low and is now seated high. Christ did not consider his riches as something to hold on to. Instead, he gave them up for the benefit of us. And therefore now has the entire world at his feet. Christ looked to our interests, and in doing, he improved his own. He was a man laughed at, scorned, ridiculed, beaten, and killed. He was humiliated. The lowest, the lowest of the low in front of all of Israel and all of Rome, he died the most humiliating of deaths alongside two thieves and criminals. He went through that, came out, and has the name that is now above all names. And whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will be exalted and glorified because he went first into that position of loneliness as a man. He was fully man. And when we think of him this way, we think, think of a man going through that. Think of the man going through that low place of suffering and rising to the high place that he's now, now in. God loves you and wants to take care of you. And he's proven that in Christ. As, as, Jesus, as, as the scriptures say, if he has given his son, will he not freely give us all things? If we believe the gospel, if we believe the gospel, we can enter into this, this type of lifestyle in regard to our money where we're, we're free. We're free. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we don't suffer the challenges of, of, of budgeting and, and surprise uh, expenses. And, and, you know, I'm not talking about never having any sort of anxiety around money. But there's a difference in living a life where there's a, a, deg a, a great degree of freedom and peace and security around your finances because of your approach to them through the gospel. And then there's the life of constant insecurity because as a Christian, you're not confident in the Lord's provision of you or in what you have, and there's a lot of discontent because deep down in the heart, you know that you haven't been faithful with it. And so we want to be in a place of freedom, and we want to follow Christ in that freedom. Let me pray.